All right, well, I'm glad that you're here tonight. It's always great to gather with you. And obviously on a night like this, we're, we try to be a little bit more intentional of keeping the message a little bit shorter. So there's an opportunity for a little bit more fellowship. You think about the things or the components that God has outlined or highlighted or maybe brought to light in terms of our spiritual success and and how he's laid those out, especially in the church age here, the kinds of things that he talks about as being beneficial to us. We know that even praising him with songs of praise, though that's not the only way we praise the Lord. We praise the Lord anytime we're lifting him up or putting the focus or the spotlight on him. But one element of doing that is corporate singing. We can sing songs together. There's not a lot of, frankly, I'm probably going to teach on this in a bit. I don't know, by a bit it might, I'd say sometime in the next several years. But as, as we're thinking about that, there's not, there's not a lot of directives given, right, really, other than you find examples of people of faith coming together and singing songs of faith or th- songs that are intended to put this focus on, on the Lord or another byproduct of, the, of that ministry or that type of, of uh, expression in, in a church or a gathering of believers is also a teaching ministry that we can learn things and be reminded of things also that we can put a spotlight on the Lord. So those are some of the components of that that you can find as you look into that. Also, corporate prayer is held up as something that is beneficial for us to do together or to gather together or even small groups with your own family, with others, whenever you come together. That's another component that is identified as beneficial to our spiritual well-being. Spending time in God's word individually, giving attention to actually reading what God has had to say, what he's revealed. We call it the revelation of God. God has revealed himself to us through his word. Young people here in this church were taught that the way that we can communicate with God is to share our thoughts with him. We call that what, kids? Someone? Prayer, yeah, we talk to God. By, we, we tell him things. We share ideas, share thoughts, share things that we're going through with him. When we share those things and include God in, in those things, that's called prayer. It's not any more fancy than that. That is prayer. Now, we can do that individually, and we ought to be praying our way through the day, meaning just talking to God as we go through our day, right? And then we think about gathering corporately. There's this idea that we benefit from praying together. Then it's learning God's word together. Some of it is through reading it ourselves. Some of it's through learning it together. Some of that's through the teaching of God's word as the teaching of the word of God is held up as one of the beneficial aspects of coming together as a body of believers. Another aspect of it, though, is fellowship. It's the idea of coming together in a building one another up kind of a mentality, this idea that we come together as individual parts of one body for the edification or the the building up of the body collectively as a whole. And so as you think about fellowship, that means nothing, that's a big word, kids, but fellowship just means to come into closeness, a a time of closeness or, or intimacy or nearness to one another. And so we have fellowship then when we come into the, that closeness with one another and we share life. We live life with one another. So there's fellowship. And you talk about fellowship with the Father. It's about drawing near to Him, staying, staying in close proximity to Him, leaning into God in a sense of place of rest and dependence where I'm trusting Him and I'm, I'm counting on Him to undertake and lead and direct and provide for me and empower me. Uh, that that 
is having fellowship with God. When I'm, when I'm walking and letting, with my focus on him, my gaze on him, and I'm including him, I'm trusting him and letting him, again, empower and lead and work through me. And in those moments, I'm said to have that relational closeness or intimacy with God that God wants to have with us. So when we gather together as a body of believers, there's a lot of different things that come into that that are beneficial to us. I wouldn't rank them necessarily. I would just say that they're all useful. And so I love any time we can gather because a part of that gathering usually is to do some amount of some of those different things. Tonight we'll have prayed together. We'll have sang some songs together. We'll have fellowship together. We'll have opened God's word together. We'll have been taught from God's word together. And we'll have had that time of closeness together. So there's a lot of things that just every time we get together, God is using for our benefit in our lives. And some people... Some are, are tricked, I think, into believing that they don't need this, this time of getting together, that in this life that we're going through, that's not very important. There's other things that are more important. And the truth is nothing's more important to our spir- spiritual well-being and our accomplishing the purpose God made us for than taking him at his word and trusting him enough to listen to what he says and, and realize that he wants what's best for us and he knows what's best for us and we'd be best served to just trust him and, and acknowledge that in our lives and allow him to lead and direct. All right, well, that's that. I want to pray and then we'll get into our passage for tonight. It's not long. It's one verse, so we'll see how long that takes. Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you for this time that we could spend together. Thank you that you gave us your son to make a way for us to have closeness with you and then you gave us one another so that we could have a body, we could have a family of faith to go through life with, and we would never be alone. As you say that you're going to indwell us with your spirit, you're going to seal us with your spirit the very moment that we put our faith in you, so we'll never be alone in that sense. And then you've made it or you've designed it so that we wouldn't really be alone in a human sense either, as we'd have other believers to go through life with and to uh, rely on and depend on and lean on and to build up and pick up each other and to, to be stronger together than we would be apart. So thank you for this time we could gather tonight, even the time of fellowship afterward. Pray that we would see uh, the value in it, that we'd have attitudes that want to allow you to shine through us into the lives of the other believers you've put in our lives and then the unbelievers around us so that they could see the light of the glorious gospel emanating or shining or radiating off of us as we just keep our focus on you and let you work in and through us. Pray that you just give us wisdom here as we even look at this passage tonight. Pray that this would be an encouraging uh, truth that we could look at and consider. Pray that it would uh, affect our lives in ways where you would make changes in our lives as a result of us responding to your truth and your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, the title of tonight's devotion is Serving God's Purpose, Serving God's Purpose. And this is a verse that I was made aware of just this week. I hadn't even really considered it in the past. We'll get to it in a moment. But the tie-in to this verse actually comes from a, a man who has gone to be with the Lord now. His name is John Whitcomb. And how many of, how you've, how many of you young people have heard, ever heard the name John Whitcomb? Okay couple of you not so young, middle-aged folks have. Okay, good. I'm glad you still feel young. You don't look young, but you feel young. That's good. Uh, So as we're thinking about John Whitcomb, though, some of us, of course, remember him. John Whitcomb was a fellow believer and brother in Christ. He still is. He's just in glory right now. So he is uh, a fellow believer and a brother in Christ. He went to be with the Lord in 2020. 
uh, about four years ago. He's credited with being a father of the modern creationist movement. He authored several influential books defending a literal understanding of Genesis. If I was to think of the impact that he's, he had on my life, it was I was introduced to him and through his writing with John Morris, another man of faith, another theologian. The two of them together wrote some books that shook up a little bit or caused people to, to see that the Bible, even the early chapters of the Bible, especially the creation account, sh- could and should be taken literally. You didn't have to read a whole bunch of time into them. He had been introduced to the gap theory even when he was a younger believer, but he became persuaded that we could take God's words literally. And that as God said he created things in a literal 24-hour day, the evening and the morning were the first day, the evening and the morning were the second day, evening and morning reference a what? A literal 24-hour day. And there had been some wavering within the faith community in the time that he was first getting started. He lived to be 95 years old, so he was around for quite a while. But even going back into the 30s, 40s, 50s, in that time frame, there was you know, people who still believe the Bible was true, but they were trying to figure out how can we deal with this idea that there are those who saying, are saying that the earth is millions and billions of years old, and how can we be true to the word of God but still maybe give some credence, if you will, to these scientific theories. And so in any event, he started this, I would call it a return to this idea that the Bible could be could and should be again taken literally, that we're talking about his create God's creative work taking place over six days of creation, with on a seventh day he rested. That when God says something, we can take it at face value. We don't have to come up with other explanations for what he might have meant by it. We just assume that unless given some strong reason to do so, we're always going to take it to be literal. And so in any event, he wrote some influential books that had a lot of impact on men and women of faith throughout the world, but especially in this country. And that movement kind of spread to the point where quite a few people, I think, changed their perspective. Along came groups after him like Answers in Genesis, places like this that kind of kept that moving, where as a faith community, more and more people would continue to hold to the view of biblical creationism, this idea that God said it, God meant what he said, and that when he said he created the world, that's exactly what he did. When he said he did it in six days, that's exactly what he did, and that there was no significant gaps of time, and we could track time from there. And so he made a bunch of charts of time that helped to give timelines to where events happened in the Old Testament, how long between creation and Abraham, how long between Abraham and Moses, between Moses and, and Jesus. And so as, you, as you're thinking about what his impact was, that was his impact. But those of you who don't know him, he got to be quite well known in Christian circles. And he taught and spoke around the country for approximately nearly, nearly 60 years. And he passed away again at 95 years old, but he spoke at this church. He taught a conference at this church, maybe more than one, I don't recall. Anyone know? Was he here more than once? Okay, so he was here once. Uh, I recall that happening. I know, I know he even had a meal at my parents' home. And so you're thinking about this, this man. God used him to cause people to do what they should have been doing all along, which is to just take God's word at face value. To have faith is to believe that what God says is true, 
That's what the simplest definition of faith is, is faith is just believing what God says he will do, that what God says is true and that he is a faithful God who will complete what he says. Now, you're saying, why are you talking about John Whitcomb and what does that have to do with serving God's purpose? I bring him up because at his memorial service, his son spoke and his son referenced the verse that really impacted me that I hadn't ever really even thought of. And I, I was just made aware of this here this week. And so this is a service that took place a while back, but I became aware of this verse being used in reference to John Whitcomb here this week. And so I, I took a look at it and it really impacted me. So I wanted to share it with you tonight in terms of a, a uh, devotion. So turn to Acts chapter 13 and let's read this verse together. Now we'll read it here in whatever, I have New King James here in front of me, but then we're going to read it, I'm going to read it to you in a slightly different version, the ESV version of the Bible, because I think it captures the meaning of what I'm getting at here, or why it was used in reference to John Whitcomb a little bit more clearly, a little bit easier to grasp, but we'll read it in both, and then we'll go from there. Like I say, it's just this one verse here, but there's a bunch to consider or observe about this verse. Acts chapter 13, verse 37. Now, just to give you some context, Jesus, or the author of Acts, Luke, is, is talking about a comparison between the natural, a natural human existence and Jesus Christ, and saying that human beings, we, when we die, our bodies are buried in the ground, and they end up, you know, rotting away. There's not a really a nice way to, to say that. And they're waiting for a future resurrection, a future bodily resurrection. But Jesus, in contrast to seeing that he saw no corruption because he was the son of God and he was the firstborn, he was the first fruits of them which slept, he was the first to be resurrected in a sense in a permanent way. Some say, well, what about Lazarus and what about some of the others? Well, they weren't permanently resurrected. They were resurrected and then they ended up dying another nat a natural death and, and they're waiting for their future resurrection again too. But Jesus was resurrected after dying, being buried, he rose again. He was, he was given as an example of the, the same power that was able to raise Jesus from the dead. That's the kind of power that God has. And God is able to keep his promises when he says to us that you will be resurrected one day. That you'll be able to have a bodily resurrection where you're given a glorified body and you get to spend all of eternity with God in heaven. And so Jesus is held up as the evidence of that or the example of that or the, the first the first proof of that, so to speak, I guess is how I would put it. Maybe there's a better way to put it. But that's not what I want to get at. That's the context of the passage, just because context is important. But it's sort of a passing thought the way that he says this. And it's, we're going to take the secondary meaning out of here, not the primary point. So verse 37 then. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. I got the wrong, I got the... 36 is what I wanted. I got, the, I got the address wrong here, kids. I was one verse too far. 36. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, he fell asleep, meaning he died. He was buried with his fathers and saw corruption, meaning his body decayed away. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption in reference to Jesus Christ. So that's the context. But let's look at these specific words, especially these. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep. Now, if you read that in the ESV, it says this. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But it's the first part of this verse. David 
after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep or died. So David died is the main idea of this verse. But only after what? David died after he served the purpose of God in his own generation. And that's why this verse was brought up at John Whitcomb's funeral. It was brought up as an example of a person who had a task. They had a, they had a time that was available to them here on earth, and that time had a purpose. The purpose was to serve the purpose of God in the particular generation that that person found themselves in human history. So at a for such a time as this, you could think of in terms of Esther, but God has a very specific idea of each and every one of us. He knows you intimately. He knows you, he knows you in every detail. He's made you and created you uniquely. He's gifted you uniquely. He's given you unique time, uh, a unique amount of time, meaning you won't live exactly the same amount of time as everyone else. Your, your, your amount of time that you're given is unique to you, in a sense, down to the very second. Uh, you have a unique amount of, of treasure. You have a unique amount of talents in terms of even giftedness by God. Your, your, your purpose that God has for you is uni- generally the same as everyone else, but it's unique to you also, in a sense, and it's unique to a particular particular time that God wants to use you in other people's lives. So, young people, is your time that God gave you, is it the same as the time God gave me? Is your time to serve the same as it is to mine, is mine? Not exactly the same. We're overlapping a little bit, but who was born first, you or me? I was born first, right? So there was a portion of my life that was lived before you were even born where my time, the time that God had for me to serve his purposes wasn't exactly like yours and then you came along. And now together, we're kind of in parallel with one another, but who's, who normally, if, if, if nature takes its course, who's na- normally gonna die first, me or you? Me, right? I was born first, so normally I would, I would die first, right? So then you'll be continuing with your journey well, I'll be with the Lord in heaven, in a sense, I guess, continuing that journey too, but not here on earth. Is this making sense? Each one has their unique place in history where God wants to use them to accomplish his purposes. So I want to break this down just a little bit. Now, the first principle I want to take away from this is God has a general purpose for your life. If you take this, that David died, but only after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, you'd have to first understand that God has a general purpose for your life. And as I think about that, maybe you think about that, two things come to my mind. And I would say this, it's not maybe a complete definition, but I would say God's general purpose for all men, that means you and I and everyone in this room, everyone who's not in this room, but all believers, it's twofold. He created, you were created first to enjoy him and second to glorify him. And we had a message about that not too long ago. We were, as you think about the chief aim of man or the chief purpose or man's purpose, and we talked about this idea that man was created relationally, created to relate to God and interact with God in an intimate way. And that as a part of doing that, as a part of enjoying God, that we would be able to lift him up. We would be able to serve him, magnify him, make him bigger. We'd be able to glorify God. And all that means is to put the spotlight on him, to make him the center, make him the emphasis. But it's a byproduct of first enjoying him 
I was made to enjoy him as I enjoy him. Then I'm able to have that intimacy of fellowship and relationship with him. And he's free to do what? He's free to work in my life, lead in my life, direct in my life as he's empowering my life to produce a way of life that can please him. And it's not the other way around. And so as you think about that twofold general purpose of man, you're created to enjoy him and glorify him. Now that enjoyment, of course, is just a phrase or it's connected to relational closeness. As I am close to God, I'm drawing near to him. He's already pursuing me. He already wants me to be close to him. But as I, as I make that decision or choose to avail myself of that intimacy that he offers to me, he's not forcing that intimacy on me, but as I take advantage of that by fixing my gaze on him, leaning into him, trusting him, resting in him, depending on him, as I do that, that I, then I enjoy that intimacy that God desires to have with me. I'm close to God then. God doesn't want me to distance myself from him. God doesn't want me to effectively say in my, in my own thinking, I don't need God in my life. I'm not going to consider God in my life. I'm not going to trust God. I'm not going to depend on God. I'm not going to rely on God. I'm going to do this my own way, in my own strength, on my own time. Right? And see, we, by default, that's what we do. But God, he, he wanted us to stay connected to him relationally. Now, a proper dependent relationship then, as we start with that relational closeness, that intimacy, that enjoyment of God, but that proper dependent relationship, it results in you putting the spotlight on him. Now, it's a cart before the horse kind of issue. If the focus is you need to do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, as evidence that you are enjoying the Lord, no, as I enjoy the Lord, these things automatically become true in my life because the Spirit of God is directing and leading and producing God's way of living in my life. Now, if the Spirit of God is producing that way of life in my, in my own, in the time that I've been given here, then naturally it's going to ha- put the spotlight on Jesus Christ, put the spotlight on God, however you would want to say that. Why? Because God is interested in being elevated. He was lifted up as Jesus, Jesus was lifted up so that all eyes would look to him. God exalts his son and puts, puts his son in a place of preeminence so that people would look up. Look and do what? Look and live, right? As Moses lifted up the... Who can finish that? What kid can finish that? As Moses lifted up the... Okay, but finish the verse. As Moses lifted up the... Someone say it if you know it. Even so... Okay, right? See, this idea that Jesus is going to be lifted up, he's going to be elevated to a place of prominence so that no man could say, they'd have no excuse to say, I never knew about this. I had no idea. I I had no idea about this. God's plan for us is to make Jesus bigger so that everyone would have an opportunity to respond to the gospel message. Now, the Bible says every man by virtue of conscience and creation and even the incarnation of Jesus Christ has had the opportunity of every fair shake at understanding that there is a God who has truth that he expects man to respond to. Now, everyone's understanding of truth has maybe been different, but every man has been confronted by God's truth by virtue of conscience and creation alone. Even if they had never specifically heard about Jesus Christ, they had an opportunity to respond to the truth that was in front of them. 
and God holds man responsible for that. Man is responsible not to deal with their sinfulness. Man is responsible for the decision that they make about either responding to God's truth or not responding to God's truth. And in our day, with the prevalence of how well-known the message of Jesus Christ is, there's no excuse in terms of God's Word is the number one most published available book on the planet. There's access to God's truth through many different people, through many different sources, even on the internet. The reality is that the name of Jesus Christ has been broadly proclaimed, where man has the opportunity to respond in faith to the person and work of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection on their behalf. But my point, and what I'm getting at here, is that there's a sequence here. As I enjoy the Lord, then I have this dependent relationship because the reason I'm enjoying Him in part is because I see that I'm hopeless without Him, that I absolutely need Him for any success in my life. So I have this posture of staying near to Him because He's the one who's undertaking, He's the one who's providing, He's the one who's enabling, He's the one who's empowering a way of life that could bring me joy, peace, contentment, purpose, a joy that, a, a way of life that would honor him and would be for my benefit in time and in eternity, it's only found in closeness to him. So as I'm depending on him, then he's going to be working in my life so that I would be going through life in a, with a posture of putting the spotlight on him. Now, what's other ways you could say that same thing? Well, if I'm putting the spotlight on Jesus, I'm putting the spotlight on God, I'm directing people to God's provision to deal with man's sinfulness. If I'm doing that, then I'm magnifying God. What does it mean to magnify something? You have a magnifying glass. What does it do? It makes it bigger. It makes something bigger. I pre- Some of you had your hands up. Good. If you exalt something, it means to lift it up. You're, you're lifting it up so that other people can see it. Another word would be serving. I'm serving the Lord. That would be a byproduct of depending on him, trusting on him, arresting in him, following him, staying connected it's connected to him. I'd be serving him. What does it mean to serve somebody? Someone in the back, what does that mean? Like a waiter, right? To be useful. To serve somebody means to, to assist somebody. To be useful to them. Good job. Be useful to them. And so you have two choices, right? You can either be useful to God because you're trusting him, you're relying on him, you're, reject, you're resting in him, you're enjoying him. So you can be useful to God. Who wants to be useful to God? I hope all of us can say, I want to be useful to God. But if I don't trust the Lord, if I don't stay close to him, if I don't involve him in my life, am I going to end up being useful to God or useless? Useless in an internal sense. Now, does God abandon me? No. Does he give up on me? No. But is God pleased by my not including him, not trusting him, not serving him in my life? Am I doing this through my own strength? No, I can only be useful to God because I'm staying connected to him and I'm letting his power work through me. Where I'm a conduit, a conduit is just refers to anything that something else can pass through. Um, imagine it like, you could imagine it like a, a pipe. It's a conduit for, say, water to flow through it. You know, or you think in an electrical sense, a conduit would be a metal tube that the electrical wires can go through. So we're not the power, we're not the power, but God wants us to be a vessel that he can work, he can work through. So serving, another word for the same thing of making God bigger or lifting God up would be promoting. A promoter is always talking about what? 
the thing they're promoting, right? We keep, we keep naming his name. We keep talking about him. We keep referencing how wonderful he is. How about honoring? Same kind of a thing. We're making him bigger. We're pleasing him because we're making him the spotlight of our life. How about praising? Praising is we're speaking out or we're singing his praises. We're, we're sort of proclaiming his goodness with the things that we say and also with the things that we do, but praising is more vocal. Honoring is more probably focused on what we're doing. Now, God uses that posture, that mentality, to minister to others. As you think about this general purpose of enjoying him and then serving him. Enjoying him and then glorifying him. All really the same idea. He uses this mentality or this posture that we have where we are going to trust him. We're going to depend on him. He uses that to then work through us for just our own benefit? No, he works through us, yes, for our benefit, but also for the benefit of others that he's put in our life and for his glory. Now, how does he work through my life for the benefit of others? I become just a reflection of him, and that's exactly what everybody else needs. See, people need the Lord. So if they get him through me, it's not me that's really benefiting them. It's what? It's God benefiting them by showing himself, revealing himself, shining himself through me. So all they're getting from me is really him. That's why it's not I, but it's Christ that lives in me. I'm just a reflection of him. And so the only way I could be a benefit to you, young people, is if I come into your lives and I remind you of him, I point you back to him, I reflect him into your lives. How could you be a benefit to an unbeliever? By being a reflection of Jesus, by showing them Jesus through you so that they can hear Jesus through you. They can see Jesus through you, right? That's all we're talking about. So that's God's general purpose for your life. But the other thing I want to get at here in this passage is God has a specific purpose for you that is unique to you. God has a specific purpose for you that is unique to you. You look at this phrase, David served the purpose of God. Now, there's, every believer has the same general purpose. That's why I started with that. So in a sense, there's some overlap. But God's way of being glorified or made bigger or lifted up in my life isn't, in my life isn't exactly the same as the way he wants to do that in your life. It's not with the exact same people in the exact same places at the exact same time. And so the places and the people and the time that God wants to be lifted up in your life is going to be different than mine. You're going to have a unique purpose to serve for the Lord in a sense. And so as you think about that, that should give you some pause. It should make you think, man, how, what a privilege it is to be used by the Lord to fulfill his ultimate plan and purpose, but to be used in my own unique way. And it's interesting how though it's, it's one plan that God has, it's one purpose that God has, it's expressed uniquely through my uniqueness. And God made me that way. If he didn't want it to be expressed uniquely through my uniqueness, he wouldn't have made me unique. He wouldn't have made you, you unique. Do you realize that you're unique? You're, the only, you're one of a kind. Do you see that? You're one of a kind. That's what makes you so special. And so as we think about, well, why would God do that? Because he wants us to see how special every individual is to him. So then you think about, 
why, why would you even bring up this uniqueness? And the reason I'm bringing it up tonight is because comparison to others is unavoidable and it's natural. It's unavoidable and natural to compare yourself to others even though you're uniquely made and you have a unique purpose that God wants to use individually in you or through you. But it's almost unavoidable to compare to others, compare yourself to others, for others to compare you to others. And although it's natural and although it's almost unavoidable, it's generally, I would say, relatively unproductive and useless. It's not a helpful thing to do. See, people, often they determine success or failure through comparison to others. They evaluate themselves and others this way, but other people are not the standard. Other people are not the focus. We shouldn't spend our time comparing ourselves to others. We should look to God, the standard of what we would deem or consider success to be. He's the one who determines that by our willingness to utilize our time in a way that would be depending on him, trusting in him, including him, and then being used of, of, of him to be of service to him. God will determine that on an individual basis. That's why each man will give an account to his own master, not to somebody else. And, and each one of us will stand before the Lord, even as believers, and give an account an evaluation of what did you do with these precious resources that God gave you in terms of blessings and time and treasure, talent in your lives? What did you do with it? But that's not for me to consider. That's not for you to compare to me. That's for each of us to stand before the Lord individually on. And so you think about that natural tendency to compare one person to the next person. Useless. It wasn't it's not their time that's of, of issue. It's not their giftedness. It's not their uniqueness that's of issue. It's yours. And so you think about that. Now, it's interesting because how many of you have been compared to somebody else before? I mean, it should be everyone. I do that to my kids sometimes unintentionally. If it's my son who's acting up, I say, to, I say to him, well, your sister's not being like this. If she's the one who's acting up, I say, well, your brother's not, you know, not being like this. I don't, I don't do that often because it's not good to compare kids to each other. They're, again, unique. But sometimes we do that. Sometimes if you're somebody who's involved in different kinds of activities, you compare yourself to somebody else and say, well, I'm no good at this. Well, Why? Well, because in your, by your perception, or maybe by other people's perception too, you don't measure up to somebody else's abilities. But will that generally help you get better? No. If you want to improve, it won't help you to focus on somebody else's successes or deficiencies. It would be to look at yourself and say, what things could I work on to get better? You know, and naturally, though, it happens. It actually happened to me just recently, the truth is we have a long line of, of people who have even served in this role here at, at this church. And naturally, each one of us has been compared to the other person because that's what happens, right? And some of us are still being compared to the very first person, and that happens too. And there's some good reasons to do that because there's some positive things to maybe look at there, but I'm never going to be that person. I'm uniquely me. I'm never going to be Pastor Weevil. He's uniquely himself. He was never going to be that person either because he's uniquely him. God didn't want him to be me, me to be him, him to be that other person, me to be any other person. He wanted me to be the person I am. Why? For such a time as this. 
at this unique place in history, if God is in control, he's fully in control, right? If he calls people to ministry, then he, we have to actually accept that, right? And say that if God has called people to ministry at a specific time in a specific place, then that's exactly what the fit was or, the, or what God wanted for that particular time. And so that's, it's interesting. Uh, I was actually, well, I'm not going to, I have an interesting story to tell, but I'm not going to get into it tonight about that. So we think about this uniqueness. God's specific purpose for you, it's unique to you. So don't be comparing yourself to other people. And so you think about what's gonna make me successful at accomplishing the specific purpose that God has for my life. And the two things that came to my mind are are you gonna be depending on the Lord and are you gonna be willing? See, the keys to serving the purpose of God, if that's the objective, to serve the purpose of God in this generation, in your own generation, then are you going to be willing to depend on the Lord and are you going to be willing in general to serve the Lord? God doesn't make us trust him. He doesn't make us depend on his resources. He doesn't make us willing. He's working to make us willing. He's trying to get us. He's assisting in that process in a sense, but he's not forcing it. So even the passage that says it is God that works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure, it doesn't mean he's forcing it against his will. It means that he's working to produce that outcome so that we could, we could have a volitional response that is willing, where we would be choosing him, that we'd voluntarily be allowing him to work in our lives. When those two things are present, dependence and willingness, God is then going to use you to serve him in your own unique way. And so then when you think about that, I want you to remember this, young people, that every life of faith, it's characterized by a mixture of success and failure. You see that this example, why do I bring that up? Who, who, who can pick up why I would say that? What do we know about David? Did David get it right all the time? No, right? And so David is used as an example of somebody who served the purpose of God until he died. David, until the time he died, he was serving the purpose of God in his own generation. Was he always doing that? Of course not. Every life is going to have ups and downs to it. So the focus isn't on, will I ever fail? The focus is, will I recognize when I'm not thinking right and when I am failing? Will I acknowledge that I'm not going in the direction I, I should be going or I'm not thinking the way I should be going? I, sorry, I should be thinking. And will I get my gaze or my focus, get my thinking directed back at the Lord again? Just agree with him, say the same thing as him. Just acknowledge that I'm not where I should be so that God can undertake to make those changes in my life. Now, when I'm looking back at him, I'm, I'm focused on him. I'm depending on him. I'm letting him lead in my life. I, I'm choosing this day whom I will serve. When I'm doing that and God's spirit is working in my life, then is he going to be able to use that? Yes. And in those moments, is it going to be appropriate to maybe just, just put your name in the blank instead of David? We'll put your name in the blank. You know, we'll say, Carmen served the purpose of God in her own generation. We could say, Margreta served the purpose of God in her own generation. We could say, Mr. Hautala served the purpose of God in his own generation. Could you fill your own name in there? Yes, if your thinking is in the right place. In those times, that will be true 
of you. So don't get bogged down by failure. Don't just ignore it. Don't excuse it. Don't continue to learn nothing from it, but realize that failure is an inevitable part of the human condition, and God doesn't want me to focus on it, fixate on it, wallow in it. He wants me to acknowledge it, and then he wants me to move on, forgetting the things which are behind and pressing forward toward what? The prize, running the race that's in front of me, so that when I finish my race, I could hear what? Well done, thou good and faithful one or good and faithful servant, right? That's what, the, that's what the goal is. And so then this last thing I want you to notice is that God's specific purpose for you, not only does he have a general purpose for you, for everyone's life, he has a specific purpose that's unique to you, but he has a specific purpose that's unique to you and it's unique to your time. It's unique to your time. It says, in David served the purpose of God in his own generation and then he fell asleep. Up, while David, before David died, he served the purpose of God in his own generation. See, God knows exactly what is needed to most effectively meet every specific need at every specific time, and he directs the right resources accordingly. God knows what is needed in every place at every time, and he knows who you are. He knows your uniquenesses because he's gifted you with those things. He's fully aware of it. So can God then point you to and bring you to the right need at the right time? Can he, can he work behind the scenes to do that so that needs get met by a sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful God? Right? So think of yourself as, I'm a part of that. I'm a, I'm a resource that when I'm willing is available to God to plug in to specific needs in specific places at specific times in my own unique way, exactly the way God made me. Isn't that comforting? For those, who, for those of you who are wondering, and you kind of worry about, how could I be used of God? God doesn't need you to worry about that. He needs you to enjoy him, be focused on him, be trusting him, be relying and depending on him, but letting his spirit work in your life so that he can automatically make sure that your life counts in time and in eternity as he directs you in your unique way, in your unique place, in your unique time to meet the needs that he's aware of, which you would never have had to wonder about or even, or even ever have any way of knowing, but only God himself could know that. You see, there's this phrase that I was reminded of when I saw that this verse was associated with John Whitcomb's death. The, the saying goes like this. It says, God buries his workmen, but he carries on his work. God buries his workmen, but carries on his work. And a guy named Charles Wesley wrote that. God buries his workmen, but he carries on his work. See, God was very thrilled and pleased. It pleased God that John Whitcomb was willing in his life to be used of the Lord as a byproduct of enjoying the Lord and walking by faith. That was pleasing to God. It was beneficial to John Whitcomb too, in time and in eternity, but it was pleasing to God. And just like David was used by God, David served the purpose of God in his own generation, he can serve, he can use you to serve his purposes in this generation, in your own unique and special way. Do you see that? 
Is that encouraging to think of that? That God would want to use you to serve his purposes in your own unique way, in your own unique place, in your own unique time? When I heard that, I was extremely encouraged by that. Because sometimes people, I wish you were more like this, or so-and-so would never have done it this way or that way or whatever. It's not good to be comparing yourself to other people. It's important to realize what we've covered tonight. You are unique. God wants you to be useful to serve his purposes in your own generation. So let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we can look at your word. Thank you for even this promise that is sort of obscure in the sense that it's a passing, it's a secondary concept from this verse. It isn't even the focus of this verse. But pray that it would have been encouraging to think about tonight and be reminded of that. Pray that we'd have an encouraging time of fellowship with some safety. Thank you for any of the snacks or treats that were provided here tonight and all the willing people that contribute over and over and over again to those types of things for the well-being of the congregation as a whole. Pray that we would even be used by you uh, without getting weary. We'd be used of you in a way that it actually brings joy to us to be able to participate in those ways and to minister to one another in love, even, for, even through things like that. Thank you for your great love that you have for us. Pray that we could shine your love into the lives of others as we let you work in and through us.